from the ACLU. This is At Liberty. I'm Molly Kaplan, your host. On April 28th, the Supreme Court will hear arguments for a case that has big implications for student-free speech. The case involves then-14-year-old Brandy Levy, a cheerleader at Manoy Area High School in Pennsylvania, and her post on the social media platform Snapchat. One of her cheerleading coaches saw the post, which used an expletive, and suspended her from the team for a year, even though Brandy had posted on a weekend and off-school property. Brandy and her family sued the school for violating her First Amendment rights. Brandy has prevailed in two lower federal court rulings, but now the Supreme Court will have the opportunity to uphold the win or rule for the school. For Brandy, the school's response came as a shock. For her, the post was just a moment to say she was upset. It was supposed to disappear after that. Well, I tried out for the varsity team for cheerleading and I didn't make it, so I was pretty upset. I was in one of the stores in our town. Can you tell us a little bit about the post itself? It was a photo of me and my friend whipping off the camera, and I wrote on it, F school, F cheerleading, F softball, F everything. Brandy, now 18, recalls the moment she was suspended. The post got to the coaches somehow, and I went into school. Was it that Monday? I'm not sure. I went into school sometime that week and the coach had it printed out and she called me down to her room and told me that I was suspended from the cheer team for a year. And were you surprised that you were in trouble because of that post? Yeah, I was also really upset. Brandy's father, Larry Levy, saw the school's responses misguided. Rather than seeing the post as a chance to check in with Brandy, they punished her. I mean, when she told me about the snap, I wasn't happy with what the school did. I was more concerned as to what was going on, what led to this emotional roller coaster. You know, what's what's going on mentally that is creating this? And then by the school taking that action, I thought they just compounded her emotional distress by doing that because that really upset her even more than being upset for the situation. So I was more concerned on as to what was going on that was causing this feeling and this emotion. I didn't feel that they should have taken that action that they did. So I'm curious, when as a family did the idea of a lawsuit come up? Because obviously this is going to the Supreme Court. So there were steps ahead of that. How did this all begin? Once this all happened, I called and requested a meeting or a conference with the coaches, the principal, the superintendent and the athletic director to try to resolve this and see what's going on here. I had that conference with them, but I I was able to tell just through the conversation in in the conference that I was wasting my time. Like they they were mindset. This is the way it is. I went around the room and I asked them if, if they stand by their decision and they all went around and said, yes, including the superintendent. So at that point, I ended the conference and then I went to a public school board meeting and I addressed the school board in the same situation and I asked them to reverse the decision of the coaches and the superintendent, which had the authority to do so. And at the meeting, the only response I got from the solicitor was they'll take it into consideration. So maybe about two, three weeks went by. I got in contact with the superintendent and asked her, hey, I haven't heard anything. What's where are we at with this? And she said that the school board had decided to uphold the coach's decision. And at that time, that's when I reached out to the ACLU for help. 
the ACLU has had an active role in protecting student free speech since the 1960s. ACLU free speech attorney Vera Edelman focuses on where a school's jurisdiction ends and a student's autonomy begins. I spoke with her to learn more about what's at stake in this case. So this case in terms of the issue presented is about students, really young people's free speech rights. The question is whether young people have to be subject to the same diminished speech rights that they have in schools all of the time, outside of school, on social media, at weekend protests, if they're writing op-eds in their local newspapers, really at any point in their lives when they're not in school. What is the standard that applies to their speech? And when can the government, specifically their school, punish them for it? And can you tell us how you're personally involved in the case and more broadly how the ACLU got involved in the case? I personally am one of the attorneys who's on the case, and the case began as an ACLU of Pennsylvania case. So Brandy, who was a 14-year-old cheerleader when the case began, reached out to the ACLU of Pennsylvania and told them about what had happened to her, about how she had posted a snap on the weekend at a local convenience store, just out with her friend that expressed her frustration over all of the things that had recently happened to her. She was gearing up for finals. She hadn't made her local softball team. She hadn't made the varsity cheerleading team. And she was just incredibly frustrated. And she posted something that I think a lot of us can sympathize with. Fuck school, fuck softball, fuck cheer, fuck everything on Snapchat, on a weekend, intending for the post to disappear, as it does on Snapchat, by the time that school began on Monday. Um, Unbeknownst to her, someone who was not one of her Snapchat friends took a photo of that post, showed it to her mom, who happened to be one of Brandy's cheerleading coaches, and Brandy ended up suspended from the cheerleading team for a whole year. And when that happened to her, her parents rightly said, this is a violation of her First Amendment rights. This is something that we want to deal with ourselves. And we don't think that she should have been suspended. And after they tried to convince the school that the punishment was wrong and they weren't able to do that, they reached out to the ACLU of Pennsylvania. And the ACLU of Pennsylvania represented Brandy at the district court level, at the Third Circuit level. And now we are working with the attorneys at the ACLU of Pennsylvania, and a cooperating firm representing her before the Supreme Court. And Vera, getting suspended from a club activity is a really big deal if you're 14 years old. But I'm curious, why is this a big deal from a legal perspective? And in other words, why did the ACLU take on a case about a Snapchat post? We took on the case because it really has the potential to be a landmark case for student speech rights, likely the most important young people's speech rights case in the last several decades. Because even though it's about one Snapchat in this particular case, the question that's presented is about young people's free speech rights outside of school, period. Because the way that the government is arguing the case here, they're basically saying we have the authority to punish students under a lower standard that applies to kids' speech rights in school any time that the kid is speaking to classmates or talking about school. 
which basically, as you say, in a 14-year-old's life is really anything they talk about. They're almost certainly going to be talking to a friend who's a classmate or talking about school, which is the central thing that's happening in their lives. And so even though it began as a case about a snap and still is a case about a snap, it is also about kids' free speech rights just writ large outside of school. Brandy's dad, Mr. Levy, made a really interesting point when we talked to him, which is that when he saw this post, his response wasn't punishment. His response was, I need to go talk to Brandy, that this is alarming to me as a parent. She's clearly expressing something's not right for her. You know, she's sad, she's depressed, whatever it is, I need to investigate. And so I'm curious if this brings up a slightly different point, which is that free speech and protecting free speech is actually maybe a safety measure for parents and educators so that they know and they have awareness when something is wrong. I think that's absolutely right. And there are two different things that what you said made me think of. So the first is, yes, I think it's really important for young people to be able to say when things are bothering them, when something is not going right at school. And I think that comes up in other student speech cases where schools punish kids for pushing back on abuse by coaches or talking about the racism of classmates. It's incredibly important to be able to, that's one of the main functions of speech is to be able to actually raise the fact of a problem happening and pushing decision makers, in this case, often school authorities, to actually improve the situation. And it can also be one's parents. And I think the second thing that you said that it made me think of is this case isn't just about a school's authority. It's also about parents' rights in addition to young people's free speech rights. And it's about the reality that outside of school, it isn't teachers and administrators who are necessarily responsible for or supervising a kid. It's often their parents who themselves have opinions about their kid's upbringing and whether or not their kids should be allowed to say certain things. And so this case also raises questions about parents' rights. The school is also claiming that a loss for them would mean that they wouldn't be able to regulate cyberbullying, which cyberbullying is a serious phenomenon. Is that argument legitimate? It's absolutely a serious phenomenon, and the argument is not legitimate. So the first thing to note is that the opinion that occurred below with the Third Circuit, so the opinion that the Supreme Court is reviewing, the court there basically said, we're not addressing today violent harassing or bullying speech. We're setting that to the side. And with respect to nonviolent, non-harassing, non-threatening speech, we're just saying that the school has to ascribe to the First Amendment standards that govern any other government actor outside of school. Even beyond that, speech that is severe enough to violate bullying laws is already not regulated by the First Amendment, right? You can regulate that kind of speech or conduct, depending on what exactly what doctrine it falls under, consistent with the First Amendment. Absolutely. And our position, which I think is right, is that the school does not need the expanded authority that it would get under Tinker, this diminished standard for free speech inside of school in order to address the serious harms caused by things like cyberbullying. Those things are not pure speech and are completely in contrast to uh, brandy speech in this case, and they can be regulated and punished and dealt with under existing First Amendment standards. Vera, I'm also curious why, to the extent that you can read the tea leaves, why the Supreme Court took this up to begin with. I mean, you've covered why this is a really interesting case as far as legal precedent goes, but 
you know, as far as I read, the Supreme Court is not in the habit of taking these student free speech cases. There was the case back in 2014 when it denied the appeal of the Eastern Area School District in Pennsylvania, which lost the case against two girls who were suspended for wearing, you know, I love boobies bracelets in school in honor of breast cancer awareness. And not only that, but Brandy has won this case two times, as you mentioned, once in 2019 and again in 2020. So the court seemed pretty aligned on this case. The Supreme Court is not in the habit of taking these cases. Why would the Supreme Court take this one? I think because it is an issue that is coming up a lot in the appellate courts. So there are a lot of cases in which school districts are punishing students for speech that occurs outside of school, off campus, on the weekend, either in the evening or just not during school time, completely unrelated to school, where schools are nevertheless choosing to discipline students under this vague and diminished speech standard. And we're in a world where historically it's been clear what the line is between school and outside of school. Initially, it started arguably with a physical boundary. It doesn't really make sense to be a physical boundary because there's also school supervised events, there's school supervised channels. And I think with what the school district would argue is that with the advent of the internet, all of these lines collapse. And so it's incredibly hard to know if you're in the school environment or outside of the school environment. And in some ways, we've seen courts of appeals struggle with this, where we certainly think that they shouldn't be applying a diminished standard to young people's rights, young people's speech outside of school. But they do start to get confused about what standards exactly apply. And so I think it's a case that the Supreme Court took up because it is a question on which kids, their parents, and school administrators all need some clarity. It also seems like, and I don't know if this is a factor, but that remote learning, being home for the pandemic also, you know, sort of confuses the physical lines between what is school and what isn't school. And I don't know if that's at all a factor, but, you know, this is an ongoing world where those lines are blurred. But, you know, you've alluded a couple times to the the precedent and what standards we already have. Can you take us on a little historical tour of some of the cases that have established the current legal precedent? I know Tinker v. Des Moines is a really big one. That's the 1969 case that the ACLU of Iowa took up. Can you tell us a little bit about that case and what it did for student free speech? Of course. And that is the seminal case. So great job picking it out. That case began with a 13-year-old girl who decided to wear a black armband to school to protest the Vietnam War. She did it with her brother and another family friend. And the school suspended her and her brother. And much like Brandy's parents, her parents thought this is inappropriate and it's unconstitutional. And so they came to the ACLU of Iowa, and started this case, which led all the way to the Supreme Court. I think probably Mary Beth, if you had asked her, would have said the same thing as Brandy. I definitely didn't expect to end up in the Supreme Court, but she did. And she ended up creating a landmark case for student speech rights that held that students do not shed their free speech rights at the schoolhouse gates. And the court essentially said, Within school, we're not talking about outside of school, but within the school environment, students can be disciplined for speech if the school reasonably forecasts that there will be substantial disruption or interference with the rights of others. And that substantial disruption test 
did establish that kids have speech rights while in school, but it's also a very different standard than is the one that governs outside of school and generally for people in non-school contexts because the standard is somewhat vague. What exactly is likely or reasonable to cause disruption? It's also in practice ends up pretty content and viewpoint based. So it ends up being about the message and often the opinion that is expressed. And typically, the courts really look askance at rules that function like that. And it also ends up being a rule that turns on the reaction of other people to your speech, which in legal parlance, it's sometimes called a heckler's veto. The idea is that the government gets to punish you because other people respond badly to what you say. And again, that's something that we really generally don't allow under First Amendment law. So while Tinker is incredibly important because it establishes that kids do have free speech rights inside school, and certainly we and other advocates rely on Tinker to point to unconstitutional punishment. It also is actually a much more restricted set of rules than the ones that apply outside of the school environment, outside of school supervision. And just to clarify, this is just for K through 12, right? This does not include higher education spaces. It is a case about K through 12 rights, and it should absolutely be limited to K through 12 situations. But the reality is that sometimes courts of appeals, and we think this is wrong, but courts of appeals and district courts do sometimes look to tinker to establish the rights even of college students. Even though you said that in some ways Tinker puts certain restrictions on student free speech within the school walls, is there a chance that this case, Brandy's case, could threaten some of the good aspects of the Tinker precedent? I hope not. Our position is that the court certainly shouldn't apply Tinker in this case. And so while we're pointing out the problems with Tinker, because we do think it would be a serious problem if Tinker were applied outside of the school context, we also don't think Tinker is the right standard. So this shouldn't touch Tinker. The court doesn't need to make any different rule for the in-school setting in order to decide the question before it here. If anything, I hope that our advocacy about the problems with Tinker, even inside the school setting, might have some impact on how the court thinks about student speech rights, even inside the school setting. But it's not really presented by the case. Another case that comes up around student free speech is the 1988 Hazelwood School District versus Colmeyer. And I'm wondering if that case has come into play at all here. And also if you could explain, if so, could you explain what that case is? That case is about students who were writing for the student school paper and their faculty advisor quit, I think, or had to leave the school pretty recently before the edition that became the issue before the courts in this case. The new faculty advisor basically helped them work through this edition that included two stories, one, I believe, about teen pregnancies and one about a particular kid's experience with his parents' divorce. And the edition sort of went through all of the normal stages of the student paper. And then the final stage was that the principal was supposed to review the full text of the newspaper. And when he saw those two stories, 
he did not like them. And he basically said, this is going to be too much of a problem. This invades this family's privacy. These are issues that are just too controversial to talk about in our school's paper. And so we're going to excise the stories and actually delete all of the pages on which these stories appear. And the student sued, saying, again, this is a violation of our First Amendment rights. And the result of that case, when it got to the Supreme Court, was the court holding that essentially speech that is part of a school activity or bears the school's imprimatur, where it may be confusing for readers to think, is this the school speech or is it the individual student speech? There, the standard is even lower and the regulation essentially just needs to be reasonable. So to clarify, the students lost that case. And it basically sounds like it means that student whistleblowers of lost safe haven from school authority. Is that is that sort of accurate? I don't think that's right, because I think it's really about the ability of the school to regulate the speech that is happening as part of and inside the school activity. And paid for by the school. So basically endorsed by the school. Yes, there were a lot of very clear facts in that case that showed the level of school involvement. So this was part of a journalism class. It was something that was entirely supervised by the school, by school administrators, the teacher, the principal. It was something that was happening during school hours that students were doing for school credit, that they were doing as part of a class to learn specific lessons. So it is really clearly in terms of the way that we're thinking about, for example, Brandy's case, part of the school environment, part of something that is supervised by the school where a different set of rule applies, set of rules apply than we would argue should apply um, outside of the school environment and outside of school supervision. But you're right that it is actually a different standard than applies in Tinker, which was about a kid's right to speak as a student and Let's say that Hazelwood is essentially about what a kid's right is to speak as a within a school activity. So to sum up, two of the biggest landmark student free speech cases are actually not that relevant to Brandy's case. Is that is that a good summation? I think that's right. But I think what's important about those cases is that they do consistently draw a distinction between speech that is happening within the school environment and speech that's happening outside. And there's a third case, Morse v. Frederick, which is the bong hits for Jesus case, which was also an ACLU, I believe ACLU of Alaska case. And in that case, a student came late to school and he arrived, I think, was on the opposite side of the street from the school during a time when an Olympic rally was going to be coming through town. And he wanted just to be on the news, basically, and unfurled an enormous banner that said, bong hits for Jesus. And he was punished for unfurling that banner. And again, it made its way up to the Supreme Court. And the student did lose, in part because... One of my favorite passages is the Supreme Court justices wrestling with what exactly bong hits for Jesus means. But they basically say the school interpreted this as a message endorsing or urging the use of illegal drugs. That's not unreasonable. We think that specifically that kind of speech. So they make this very specific carve out for speech that is encouraging drug use 
can be regulated by the school. And this is occurring during a time when students have been told they can be outside for this Olympic rally. There are teachers outside supervising them. It is very physically proximate to the school. So it is, again, part of the school environment. But in that case, they make clear that the line they're drawing there and also the line they've drawn in other Supreme Court cases, which reminds me, I also, we need to talk about Fraser. They make clear that that same speech outside of school could not be regulated by the school. Which is the recurring theme, that there are certain rights the court has acknowledged as a student and then different rights and much more liberal rights when you are not at school, not in your role as a student, which sort of, I know you brought up one one other case, but I did want to bring up the point about social media because social media use outside of school, off school property, not on school time, seems to be the area that is a little bit murkier here. And I'm sort of curious if the courts have ruled around that issue. And when is a student not a student anymore in their free time on social media? So in some ways, I think that's the question that is presented by this case. And our position is that when you're outside of school supervision, outside of school hours, off of school campus, not in something that is controlled or supervised by the school, then you get to be your full young self. And social media can encompasses all of that. There certainly are instances where you are using social media or the internet for a class project or perhaps during school, but then it's also the space that young people really use to live their lives. It's the place where people are figuring out their political views, expressing their political views, organizing, composing art, figuring out stand-up routines, writing songs. So much speech happens on social media that even if this case were somehow limited, even though by no rule offered by the government could it be, even if it were somehow limited to the internet and social media, I would say that for young people, it would almost be a distinction without a difference. So much of a young person's life is lived online. And so it's really an incredibly important case, even if we're just about Snapchat. But I'm curious, is it our position that this isn't the case for Brandy, but even if it had been, you know, Monday at noon, she had been at school and had posted this on her social media account, that that is still her personal right, her right to self-expression, because it is technically not part of her role as a student. Is that is that where we would fall on that? I think it's a much harder question, and I think that it would most likely actually fall on the other side of the line. I don't know what's happening at noon. Is she, you know, is this a full school day? Is she in a class? Is she in the lunchroom? Maybe there are differences there, but I actually think that specific scenario we would say could be subject to tinker. You had alluded to this Frazier case as actually being quite relevant in Brandy's case. Can you tell us what that case is? Yes. So in that case, a student decided to nominate a friend by giving what the Supreme Court ultimately called a very vulgar and lewd speech in a mandatory school assembly. He used crass sexual language in front of very much a captive audience of hundreds of his classmates. And there the court said that the school could discipline him in that context, in the school captive audience, school assembly context, but that it couldn't punish him outside of school and the for that exact same speech. And the Supreme Court made that 
crystal clear in Morse, the Bong Hits for Jesus case, where it basically said that someone could wear a jacket, for example, saying, fuck the draft, outside in public, even though a student couldn't use comparable language inside a school assembly. So that case and the way that the court has talked about it in future cases really makes this in-school environment, under-school supervision, outside-of-school distinction that we think is central to Brandy's case crystal clear. Right. And because Brandy was not in school, it was the weekend, and she was not at a school event or within school walls. She was solidly outside those restrictions. Exactly. Hmm. Vera, can we talk a little bit about how the fact of Brandy being a cheerleader and athlete fits in here? Because it does seem like student-athlete rights are a particularly fraught space, particularly in higher education um, arenas where students are sometimes making the schools goo gobs of money, but not making any money themselves. And when the stakes of for example, getting kicked off a team can be financially catastrophic for students. And you mentioned that this is just K through 12, but oftentimes appeals courts can apply the same standards to higher education spaces. So I'm wondering why might it be important for student athletes to be able to speak freely? And why is the athletic space a space where um, it seems that the, the rules sort of gray out a little bit, where you're maybe representing the school through your team off of school property? I mean, because that came up with Mrs. Lucetta was the one of the cheerleading coach in her deposition. She said that there are cheerleading rules and that Brandy was representing the school through her cheerleading. So can you sort of tell us how the, the athletics space fits into this free speech space? Yes, there's so much there. So I think that one thing to point out is, yes, absolutely what you said about college sports is true, that being on a sports team really also is your ticket in some cases to being at the school and being able to stay there and afford it. But I also think that there are ways in which extracurriculars really matter, even in the K through 12 context, both in terms of what the opportunities mean for a person's development at that time, and also in terms of their ability to go to college and fill out the resume and do what they need to do to get sort of, you know, even though maybe we can have a separate discussion about whether or not that's a good thing and what the state of college admissions should be. But I think that extracurriculars, people may have a tendency to think about them as just something you volunteer for or sign up for. And if you're signing up for it, you don't get to really complain about the conditions that surround it. But I think the reality is that extracurriculars are incredibly important for young people, and they're not as voluntary as we might want to pretend that they are. I also think it's worth pointing out that the extracurricular here is cheerleading. And so a lot of the hypotheticals that we're thinking about and seeing in briefs have to do with sports teams. But extracurriculars are also, you know, Model UN or the student paper or the school play, where I think we might have slightly different intuitions about what kinds of authority we expect to see. And I think the last part of your authority from the faculty supervisor and the kinds of sort of ethics that are being taught through the activity. And I think that one thing that might happen when people think about sports and cheerleading obviously included in that is that there is this idea of team unity and of just doing what the coach tells you because that's part of what the activity is supposed to teach. But I think that's a really dangerous 
line to apply. One of the um, lines in Tinker is basically about schools not becoming enclaves of authoritarianism. And much as we think it might be closer to the ethic of the activity, I also don't think that sports teams should become enclaves of authoritarianism. And it seems like in what we're talking about that there is also maybe a disparate impact for students of color. Like if you are a football player and you are at a division one school and, you know, you're making the school a ton of money and you say something like Black Lives Matter on Twitter and the, you know, boosters aren't happy with that tweet um, and they're contributing money to the team and you get in trouble, you know, that impact and your right to speak out on racial justice you know, it seems like it shouldn't affect your role as a football player, but it does, right? Like there are so many circumstances where this would have disparate impact on students of color. I think that's absolutely right. And there's an amicus brief that was filed in support of our position that talks about the reality of a vague and viewpoint-based standard getting applied in disparate ways. And I think there are a lot of specific news stories and case examples that bear this out. There was a Southern Poverty Law Center report, I think from 2015, that looked at one Alabama town that was majority white, but surprise, the majority of the discipline that was administered for online speech was against Black kids, including a Black girl who posted a photo from a memorial for her father a photo of a student, quote, holding too much money, and a photo of a student holding a toy gun. All of those kids were disciplined. There have also been a lot of examples of schools suspending kids for criticizing the racist views and speech of other people. So a school in North Carolina suspended two Black students for reposting a video of a white classmate using a racial slur while she was criticizing gun control laws. An Ohio school suspended two kids for reposting a classmate's racist remarks on Snapchat in order to criticize them. And a school suspended a student who criticized his classmates for posting a racist video, specifically pumping a shotgun and asking who was ready to go and word hunting, in addition to disciplining the two classmates. So there's definitely a reality that schools use this standard, the Tinker standard, to punish kids for expressing their political views and pushing back on the racism of people around them. Can you walk us through sort of the consequences? If Brandy prevails at the Supreme Court, what would the consequences be for free speech in the legal sphere? And then if she does not, what would the consequences be? If Brandy wins, I think that not a terrible amount changes because we really do think that the current reality is and should be that students are able to speak outside of the school environment in their own time, on the weekend, not bearing the imprimatur of the school with their full speech rights in hand. I think that in practical terms, it may end up, I hope it changes things because as I just said, schools often do discipline students and young people for speech that they're engaging in outside of school subject to this lower standard. And they shouldn't do that. And hopefully if Brandy wins, the Supreme Court will make clear to them that they shouldn't and can't do that anymore. If Brandy loses, I think this is kind of a lawyer answer. It sort of depends on how she loses. But if she loses uh, because Tinker ends up getting applied outside of the school context, 
I think that's really troubling. I think it means that public students, people who are between the ages of four and 18 and go to public schools, don't ever get to fully exercise their voices. They have to always think, well, if I decide to even wear this on the weekend or express my gender identity in this particular way after school hours or go to this particular protest or write this particular op-ed, might someone at my school think that it's disruptive? Because if any one other person who goes to my school or the topic of any of the things I just talked about has to do with school, then the school gets to punish me if it's reasonably disruptive. And I think that's a huge loss for students, for young people's speech rights. It's also a loss for me as an adult who wants to be listening to kids and learning from them and understanding their perspective on environmental justice and gun control and all of the other issues that affect them. I think it would be a a big loss if that's how the court decided to go. Well, Vera, this was wonderful. This was like going to law school without having to pay the tuition. So I am so appreciative of you. Um, Thank you so much for, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. For Brandy, having her case go to the Supreme Court is an opportunity to clarify what free speech means for students like her. It's surprising. I was shocked when I found out it was going this far. It's kind of exciting. Yeah, I mean, I remember in school, like, these were the things we studied, you know, in history books. Like, there were people's pictures, like Mary Beth Tinker's picture was in my history book. I mean, that's you. I also wanted to ask if, you know, now that it's almost, you know, it's years since you posted that snap, have you learned from this whole experience? Like, what message do you hope that the Supreme Court ruling sends to fellow students and and really to people across the country? I hope that it proves to people that you can't punish kids and like young adults like me for what people say out of school if it's not harassing or threatening or bullying. And Mr. Levy, how about for you? What would it mean? You know, I I really, I hope they uphold the Third Circuit's decision on this. I mean, again, the Third Circuit's decision was well-written and right to the point. And I think if they uphold it, that kind of, I don't want to see like students be afraid to just say how they feel or afraid no matter what I post, am I going to get suspended? Am I going to get detention? Yeah. And, and, you know, also social media is a way that students and particularly athletes sometimes engage in activism. You know, if they have an opinion about an injustice that they see, it has also become a really important outlet for that. Right. Well, thank you both so much for talking to me. I'm so appreciative and also really looking forward to seeing how this all goes. Us too. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of At Liberty, please subscribe and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. Until next week, stay strong.